I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Andrew Kern. Welcome to another episode of Ask Andrew. And I am happy today to address a question from Sarah about the five common topics. Before I do, I want to read a a brief note from Edward P.J. Corbett in a book called Classical Rhetoric for the Modern Student. And this is my sort of introductory exordium, to be redundant. Corbett writes, The system of the topics is really an outgrowth of the study of how the human mind works. Love that phrasing. An outgrowth of the study of how the human mind works. The human mind does think about particular things, but its constant tendency is to rise above the particulars and to draw abstractions, to generalize, to classify, to analyze, to synthesize. The topics represented the system that the classical rhetoricians built upon this tendency of the human mind. Okay, so in other words, these topics that I'm about to address a question about have to do with the way the human mind works by its nature, and therefore it applies to everything. Okay, that's context. Let's look at the question. Here's what Sarah asks. I'm interested in learning about the origin of the five common topics. How long have they been in use? Who decided on the five common topics, or what led to their use? So, first question that I think some of you might be asking is, what's she talking about? What are the five common topics? And before I answer that question, I want to tell you about my own personal encounter with them and what it meant to me. Because, you see, years ago, back in the 90s, I was thinking, and I have a tendency to be a detective, a scout, Um, Those of you who are into the Enneagram would call me a five, thank you very much, because you like to pin things down, which just makes me want to escape. I'm not a butterfly on a bulletin board. I know, I know. But anyway, I have always asked hard questions, and I've learned now that I do that because I'm frighteningly insecure about the world and my relationship to it, and it's going to crush me and all that. Okay, so what I do is I ask questions, and I remember when I was young, sort of in the back of my mind, perhaps, speculating that maybe there's some questions that are really super common. The world is a chaotic and crazy place, and there's too much information to need. And I've always had this um, exaggerated appreciation, maybe, for a really good idea, and on the other hand, maybe even a fear for missing out on a really powerful idea that that might either help me gain some deep insight into the world or make me a lot of money, as you can tell, I've missed a lot of those ideas. Um, Think about an analogy, though, seriously, in, in investing. The investor is looking for 
a great idea. That might be a principle like buy and hold, uh, stop gaps, or I'm sorry, stop loss, stop stop losses. Or it might be a, a specific idea like buy this particular stock or use this particular, um, well, strategy would be more of a general idea, but buy this particular investment vehicle. So what are they doing? They're looking for ideas. Now, for me, transfer that to all of life <laughs> and, and imagine that you're, you're trying to figure everything out. Well, I've found that I can't. However, when I was teaching writing, in my late 20s, I suppose, I made a discovery that was somewhere on the edge of mind-blowing. And this is, the discovery was this. There are common questions that we ask all the time about everything we think about. Now, don't get me wrong. I didn't discover this by my own research. I found it in a book. In other words, I didn't scientifically discover this. I found it in a book. What book was that, you might ask? It was Aristotle's Rhetoric, in which Aristotle contended, or maybe it was his topics, but this is a long time ago. But what, what, what he contended is that human beings ask the same questions over and over again, and there's only a few of them. He listed, as I recall, about 29 of them. I could not believe my luck. Because some of these questions are really obvious. For example, you can't help but ask, how are those two things that I'm sitting beside or looking at similar? And how are they different? You ask that, so do I, so constantly and permanently that you don't even know you're doing it. And yet, you instantaneously draw massive conclusions about the things you're experiencing just by, in your subconscious mind often, or let's call it pre-conscious, comparing things. In front of me are two posters. One has gray and one has bluish tints. One has a lot of trees, one has one tree. One has no water, the other has a little bit of a, I think, peninsula with a man standing on it. What am I doing? I'm just looking at them and seeing things in them. And I'm drawing conclusions about what they're saying and what they represent. One has a quotation by Wendell Berry, the other by Mortimer Adler. The mind can't help comparing things. The mind cannot help but ask, why did that just happen? What are the causes of that thing? Or if I do this, what will follow? You can't stop yourself from thinking that way. And the reason... now. You know, the one way to respond to that is, oh my goodness, I'm enslaved to the categories of my mind. But there's another possible answer to that. It might be that those are the questions that set you free, that enable you to live in the world as it actually is. Because maybe your mind is made for the world that we live in. Maybe you're supposed to ask those questions because those questions set you free by leading you to truth. That's Aristotle's presupposition, and that's my belief. And so when I discovered that there were these about 29 questions that Aristotle listed, I could not believe my luck. Literally, I could not believe my luck. Because what I'm looking for is two things when I'm thinking, subconsciously. Maybe you are too. I'm looking, I'm looking back and acknowledging that this is what I've always looked for. On the one hand, simplicity. 
the world is crazy. The world is so chaotic. There's so many movements and energies and distinctions and differences. Is there anything that holds it together? Is there anything that makes sense of it, that can simplify it? Does Jesus mean anything at all when he says only one thing is needful? You're worried and anxious about many things, he says to Martha, but only one thing is needful. What a powerful idea. There's a simplicity to knowing the world. But the second thing, and maybe it sounds like the opposite of simplicity, is I also want thoroughness. I don't want to miss out on anything that matters. I don't, I don't want to be a fool. I want to understand. The topics of invention, as they're called, are the questions or the categories of thought that we are given that we can't not think with that enable us to know the world that we live in and the people with whom we share it. And they are simple and they are thorough, although I won't say they're exhaustive. Notice that they're called common topics. Why common? Common because of two things. One, they're common to every person. Every person asks these questions whether he knows it or not. And second, they're common to every topic, every subject, let me say. They're common to every inquiry. No matter what you're thinking about, if you want to understand that thing, you're asking, what is it? What is it made up of? That's the topic of definition. You're asking, how does it compare to other things? What comparisons take place within it? That's the topic of comparison. You're asking yourself, where does it occur? What's this, what are the circumstances? That's the topic of circumstance, which includes also possibility, probability, um, um, cause and effect, all those things are circumstance. Then there's the topic of relation. Actually, that's, that's cause and effect is, comes under relation. And then there's authority. Who, who has something to say about this? Now, some of you have used or know either classical rhetoric or the lost tools of writing, and you know exactly what these five topics are, so you don't need me to go through them again. But for some of you, it might surprise you to know that you're always using these. And if you can teach your children to use these topics well, you have, you have taught your child to think well. That's why they're common, because they're common to every inquiry and they're common to every person. But why are they topics? Topic is actually a funny word. It's from the Greek topoi. We get topology, and it means a place. In fact, sometimes they're called the commonplaces. What's, what does that mean? It is a place, a commonplace or a topic is a place that you go in your mind or that your mind goes to gather information. Think of it as, I, I, sometimes I use the analogy of a cave, of five caves, because there's five common topics. The cave of definite, your mind goes into that mine down there. And you go with whatever tools you've got, you can bring in your shovels and so on and so forth, and you dig around in the, the mine of meaning, the mine of definition, the mine of whatness. <laughs> There's a poem title for you if anybody needs one. The mine of whatness. And you just dig around, you throw everything you can into your, into your um, bucket, and then you bring it out, and then you sort it. Then you go into the topic of comparison, the mine of comparison. You put it, whatever you can, you throw it into your bucket and you bring it out. Then you go into the mine of relation. You go into the mine of circumstance, the mine of authority. And you fill your, your trains, your, I forget what the term is for those little carts that they bring down into mines, but you fill them up. You don't worry about whether 
whether it's going to be good or bad. You just throw it in. You determine whether it's gold or silver or precious stones once you're out in the light again and you have the equipment to do that. That's why we do an Annie in, in the um, Lost Tools of Writing. We don't want kids to deciphering and filtering. We just want them filling their buckets. Because that's what you do with the topics of invention, with the commonplaces. Your mind goes into those areas, and it might use books, it might use encyclopedias, it might go online, or it might just reflect, it might just think, and then it records. And then after it does that, it thinks about what to keep and what not, and that moves them into the, to the canon of arrangement. Those are the five topics. Now, the question, however, wasn't what are they? The question was, where'd they come from? How long have they been in use? And here, here I need to briefly tell you one of the more fascinating stories in the history of the world. The origin, if you like, of the topics arises from a long argument. They're, they're intimately bound to classical rhetoric. That's why I brought out Edward P.J. Corbett's book, Classical Rhetoric for the Modern Student. That being the case, Homer is the first recorder of the topics. However, he's not the first analyst. And there's a huge difference. What Homer did is record lots of speeches, lots of speeches and debates and arguments. And in those speeches, debates and arguments are lots of topics, the use of topics. What comes over the course of the next few centuries, because Homer wrote around 750 whatever BC, we don't see the topics identified and analyzed and sort of pinned to a bulletin board or turned into a handbook until around 400 or even after that. So what happened in between? Well, what happened was an argument between, on the one hand, who you might call these one group of people the sophists, and on the other hand, philosophers. And I'm going to give you a caricatured view of this argument because of space and time. But basically, you have, on the one hand, a group of people called the sophists who came into Athens and taught the Athenians how to persuade anybody of anything on both sides, how to make friends and influence people, how to become leaders in society. Well, where, where did that impulse come from? On the one hand, it, it came from the sort of democratic mindset of the Greek people. And what I mean by that is the Greeks liked to argue, and they had, uh, the Athenians especially, had a wide open political system in which any citizen could participate. And in fact, many times their officials were elected literally by lot. You would become a, an archon or you would become a, a, a ruler of Athens for six months or a year because the lot fell to you. Not because you were voted, because they would have felt like that just leads to a popularity contest. True democracy is anybody can lead, so you throw the lots. Well, that means that anybody, any citizen at least, had to be prepared to argue in the legislative assembly or even in the courts where you had a 500-man jury. Like, for example, what Socrates stood before in, in his Apology, which is a nice short book you should read if you haven't yet. It's short essay, really. So what happens then is the Greeks become a very argumentative people, and the sophists come into town, and they figure out sort of techniques that you can use to persuade anybody about anything, and they make a lot of money teaching it. And then Socrates rises up and says, hold on a minute. Truth matters. You guys are corrupting Greek society, your Athenian society. You're bringing us down. 
and he argues with them. And you can read about his arguments in, the, in books like the Gorgias or the Phaedrus by, by Plato. But what's interesting about that is that Socrates is arguing with them about what rhetoric is and how it should work, and in so doing, he forces a high standard on them. And he says it's not enough to persuade for the sake of persuasion. You have to respect truth. You have to respect the good. You have to respect beauty. And as a result, Socrates' arguments recorded by Plato or modified or even made up by Plato, perhaps, are responded to by sophists. And a school is begun by a gentleman named Isocrates. And he builds up a whole approach to rhetoric in which he acknowledges the just claims that Socrates throws at the rhetoricians and says, you do have to be a good man and, and you need wide learning to be a good rhetorician. And so this dialectic, you might say, between the philosopher and the rhetorician goes on for a long time. And finally, after these centuries, Aristotle comes along and he writes his handbook on rhetoric where he acknowledges the worth of what the sophists and Isocrates are doing and demands a philosophical purity, you might say. And I love about Aristotle's rhetoric that his topics of invention are rooted in the idea of persuasion, yes, but persuasion in a moral context, in an ethical context, which is ordered to knowing truth. And so, certain skills of truth perception are essential. And what he does is he doesn't make this up out of the blue. What he does is he looks at arguments that work and he says, this is what makes you able to discover truth. This is what makes you able to discover means of persuasion, asking these questions. And that's what becomes the topics. Now, as far as we know, as far as I know, Aristotle is the first person to list them analytically. Plato puts them on display in his texts because he's adopting them from Socrates' dialogues. And then Socrates is, in a way, responding to the sophists and to Homer. But Aristotle's the first person, apparently, to list them and, and you know, make a checklist, almost, of them. Now, my guess is some sophists did before that. But, that, but as far as I know, Aristotle is the first one to, to really list them out, especially ordered toward truth perception. A key moment in the longevity, you know, how long have they been around? How long have they been in use? A key moment um, for their perpetuation is when Cicero comes along in the first century BC and adopts everything he can of the Greco tradition, the the Hellenistic tradition um, of debate in the law court, of persuasion, of forms of rhetoric, and so on. And really, Cicero differs from Aristotle. Well, he differs numerically because he has fewer topics. He also differs qualitatively because Cicero orients it more toward legal documents and and legal persuasion than philosophical persuasion. And so you see in Cicero a lot of linguistic topics. Definition is a big deal to Cicero because interpreting a text is a huge, huge emphasis for him. And so the topics of invention become interpreting a text, or if you like, reading. So these become tools of reading, not just tools of making up a speech. 
I think already in Aristotle, they're tools of reading, but you see it more explicitly perhaps in Cicero. So by the time you get to the first century BC, there's a, there's a, a, a reabsorption of the topics. Just as a side note, I should point out that according to George Kennedy and his histories of, of rhetoric, Aristotle's handbook on rhetoric was virtually unknown between the fourth and first century because he, he wrote it but put it in his own private library, and there was no publication of it, apparently, until the first century BC. And then, of course, it was Greek, so not very many people knew it. So Aristotle's rhetoric didn't have any um, public influence, direct public influence, really, until much, much later, whereas Cicero's works on rhetoric were extremely influential, uh, but absorbed a lot of the Aristotelian teaching. So Aristotle's rhetoric, you might say, is underground. So end that bracket. After Cicero, you see a few centuries in which uh, Roman rhetoric differs from Greek rhetoric, perhaps because the Republic falls, perhaps because Romans become slothful. But it's a fascinating thing to watch how there's these purists in the Roman Empire, who want, who want speech to not be artificial, to not be, in a way, an art, because they want it to be truthful, and they want it to be spiritual. And yet, they absorb the teachings and practices of the rhetoricians. And those people are the church fathers, Latin and Greek. And so, you see Basil of Caesarea, you see Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory Nazaranzus especially. You see these these Greek uh, fathers who, who are absorbing this teaching and are trained by rhetoricians. There's something called the second sophistic in which um, there's a renewal of classical rhetoric in the Roman world, third and fourth century. But the dominant figure that preserved classical rhetoric and brought it into the Middle Ages, into Christian society, was without question St. Augustine, especially in his on, on Christian doctrine. Now, oh, I didn't mention Quintilian, I don't think. After Cicero, Quintilian gives us a whole curriculum that becomes uh, widely used in Rome and then influential in the, in the Middle Ages. Um, but the dominant influential figure for the Western Middle Ages is most certainly Augustine. Now, during the Middle Ages, rhetoric comes and goes in its influence. In the 12th, 13th, maybe 14th century, dialectic is much more influential, much more dominant than rhetoric. With the, enlight with the uh, Renaissance, however, what we see really, in a way, the Renaissance is a return to grammar and, and especially rhetoric, and the pinnacle is Erasmus. So when you say, how long have they been in use? 2,500 years? I will say that with the Enlightenment, you see a shift to geometry, a very staggeringly significant shift to, uh, to geometry in which the dominant mode of thinking is analytical geometry and a detachment from things, and rhetoric goes into a decline in which it really becomes eloquence, um, style, and it loses a lot of the weight and glory of it until I would say well into the 19th, maybe even the 20th century. 
And we now are living, frankly, in a in a renewal, maybe a gestation of rhetoric. I think there's a new a new vision of rhetoric coming to be, um, possibly partly at least through the classical renewal that's going on worldwide now, and a reconsideration of the Aristotelian impulse toward truth, of the Augustinian impulse toward appropriateness, um, of the uh, the connection between thinking and expression. I think uh, the connection even between wisdom and eloquence, as, as um, Robert Littlejohn and Chuck Evan, Charles Evans called it in their book. We don't know exactly, therefore, when the topics were invented. We know that Aristotle codified them. We know that Cicero refined them. We know that Augustine perpetuated them and communicated them into the Middle Ages. And we know that there's a, a re-emphasis on them taking place even now. Um, and you can see something of that re-emphasis again in the Lost Tools of Writing. There's something of a historical perspective, if you like, for the Lost Tools of Writing. But when did they become five? Well, my first encounter with the five was when the, in, in Edward P.J. Corbett's Classical Rhetoric for the Modern Student, by Edward P.J. Corbett and Robert Connors, to be technical. I highly recommend this college textbook. But I discovered that Corbett seems to have learned it from either... Someone, from, someone named Winifred Horner or Frank D'Angelo, each of whom has textbooks of their own that predate classical rhetoric for the modern student. And what they seem to have done is to have said, this uh, Aristotelian Ciceronian structure is nice, but a little bit unwieldy. Can we simplify this for the modern college student? And they seem to have rooted it down to five common topics. There are also special topics if you are in level two of the Lost Tools of Writing, you know that the the persuasive, that the deliberative essay, sorry, the judicial essay has a couple special topics that relate to judicial writing. In other words, should he have done that? Should he be punished? And then if you do level three, you'll know that, that there's also the deliberative essay, what should be done. And there are special topics for that. And then there are special topics for the epideictic or ceremonial address. And then, whatever career you're in has its own special topics, or whatever activity you're engaged in. For example, if you're going to get married, there are special topics for a wedding, like what color dress should I wear, what, how many bridesmaids, right? Those are common to every wedding, but they're special to weddings. Investors have special topics. And my contention is that if you want to become a really good thinker in any area of life, know the five common topics, know the special topics of, of judicial, know the special topics of deliberative, because you're always going to use those, and then learn the special topics of your industry, of your career, law, that's mostly judicial, but learn the special topics of your career and you will excel in if you learn to use them well and then persuade based on them. You will excel in your career. That's the long-term vision, if you like, of, of the Lost Tools of Writing because we don't see it as for school. We see it as for life. Um, that's, that's the point being that these are really powerful for two things. Thought. If you want to think well, these are incredibly powerful. And decision-making. You know what? I'm going to say one thing for thinking, and there's two things we think about. And it goes back now to the sophistic Aristotelian argument. Sometimes what we're thinking about is truth. We want to find the truth. 
And sometimes what we're thinking about is action. We want to know what to do. The common topics were developed to those ends, truth, perception, and action. And if I can make an extreme claim here, I'm going to argue that there's nothing more practical than acting in light of the truth. And so to this day, the five topics of invention, the special, the five common topics, and the special topics are the most powerful tools of thinking you will ever find, and I hope that you are learning them. I've used a lot of time. It's time for me to stop. Thank you for listening. May I say in closing that as you as you learn to use the topics of invention and teach them to your children, orient it toward truth, orient it toward wisdom, orient it toward prudence, toward wise action in circumstances, and do that with prayer, seeking grace, and you will find that your thinking and your life is both simplified and made more thorough. And you will find that because it is consistent with God's plan for human nature and the way we know the world we live in and the people we share it with, you will find everything you do improved as long as it's made an offering to God. And therefore, I end with these words. May the Lord remember you in his kingdom. Thank you for listening. 